Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Tonight, the winter of wargaming continues as we welcome back to the front elite irregular panelist, Bruce Garrick. Yeah, hello gamers! And we also have 3MA founder, Troy Goodfellow, reporting in for this installment. Good evening. So, tonight we're going to be discussing ancient warfare and wargaming, both on tabletop and on PC. Now, Troy and Bruce, I have to admit that this is a field in which I haven't done a ton of wargaming, uh, despite the fact that my background is in classics, uh, and I tend to be really interested in uh, some of these periods, but I tend to be a little skeptical whether most ancient warfare really makes for a good wargame, and I think that's one issue. It doesn't necessarily fire my imagination as a wargamer, and I think, you know, Part of my issue with it is just sort of this, this base level um, concern that, you know, when you compare our body of knowledge about ancient warfare and the specifics of most battles uh, prior to, like, the late Roman Republic, it just seems like ancient warfare was either brutally straightforward, uh, as in the Hellenic era, with, you know, the, with hoplites clashing, uh, or we are simply missing an infuriating number of critical details, like just about everything to do uh, with Alexander. So I guess my question for you both to start is what's drawn you to ancients for this winter of wargaming? And then what are the essential elements you want from an ancients war game? Well, you've touched on a couple of good, good problems there. I mean, there are quite a few ancient strategy games, the very few ancient war games and most of our games and the computer space, at least that deal with the ancient period from strategic perspective or military perspective from military perspective, well, like the strategic layer on top of it. So the total war game, you have this whole strategic thing going on around that hegemony, the same thing. And there are other ancient strategy games that might have a war game component to them, but really they're not ancient war games because, you know, the battles are, short, generally, in the ancient period. As you say, they're very straightforward. Um, historically, most ancient wars would have ended with a couple of climactic battles. This isn't like the Civil War. This isn't like um, the First World War, the Second World War, the Napoleonic Wars, where you have series of different engagements most of the time, um, each of them with very different tactics or very different settings. Um, there are really only a few wars that in the ancient period that have, you know, repeated prolonged battles because of the peculiarities of those settings, like the Second Punic War or the Roman Civil War or, you know, major occupations like the Alexander, Alexander's invasion of Persia or the um, Caesarian conquest of Gaul. Most of the time, you know, the Romans would show up and they beat somebody and that would be it. Or the Spartans and the Athenians fought this long Peloponnesian War with very few traditional hoplite battles, since that's not what ancient war was generally about. Um, so that's one problem, I think, with having ancient war games and why they're so rare, I think, in the computer space. The other one, as you say, is just the paucity of knowledge. I mean, that, you know, uh, Phil Sabin can write a book a couple of years ago saying, oh, I have a new understanding for how ancient war works and how ancient war should be simulated, that we can still do this, you know, a century after um, Theodore Aero Dodge's books or after Hans Delbruck's, you know, research um, into ancient warfare, that we can still have these debates and not understand really, you know, I mean, even in the 70s, there was a debate over how did hoplites hold their spears? Was it overhand or underhand? 
And this is actually a major debate that was not quite settled uh, for the longest time. Uh, so the paucity of knowledge uh, does pose some problems. However, because I am drawn to the period, I think there are you know some interesting questions, and there are some. Int- I think that's what draws me to ancient war games and ancient period and ancient military simulations, is because. Every little game is trying to answer some of these questions. It's trying to say, this is what I think ancient war maybe kind of looked like. And uh, Bruce and I played a lot of tabletop games over the summer in this period, and we'll talk more about that. And every one of them tried to em- seem to emphasize one different aspect of ancient warfare. So I think that's what makes ancient wars, ancient battles, an interesting war game topic. Bruce? Yeah, I mean... Exactly what Troy says, that I think that there's more of an imaginative space in the ancients field than there is in a lot of other fields, simply because your imagination is as good as mine in terms of what actually happened. Um, And there are a lot of different ways to simulate, or I don't know if you can even call it simulate, but just represent ancient warfare. And then, you know, who knows who's really right? And uh, you can also do a lot of... um, different things that you can then make. I mean, it's, it's, it's a real sort of game designer's bonanza, right? Because you decide what you think is important and then you portray it in a certain way and you get the effect that you get. And it really is sort of your, um, it's sort of your creation, right? I mean, the, in the invasion of Russia, I mean, I know there's some games that we're going to talk about later, uh, in the winter of war gaming about the invasion of Russia, um, in which, the designers trying to make some, you know, add some things to the mix because everything we understand about how Panzers and Stukas and the Blitzkrieg worked are sort of fixed in our minds, right? So there's not much that you're going to add uh, in terms of an interpretation. Now you can make a good game or a bad game, but you're not going to. Nobody's going to say all of a sudden, "Oh my gosh, I never thought of, uh, you know, Stuka Panzer assaults this way," and I'll never think of the same way again, right? Um, but you can do that for Ancients games, and I think it's a, it's a fertile space for that kind of playing around with stuff. Now, um, are you including things like Helm's Deep in this, by the way, Rob? Why, why no, Bruce, I, I wasn't, uh, because that, 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 isn't, that isn't real. Um, and I, I know your stance uh, on the show has, has been, in, in fact, that there is historical accuracy in fantasy games. But uh, no, I, I, I have to say, well, I sort of excluded... Uh, Helm's Deep, and besides, Helm's Deep, I would argue, is more of a medieval uh, siege than uh, a late medieval siege at that, uh, than a proper ancients uh, scenario, but you're welcome to differ. I, I, well, you know, I, it, it depends, I mean, this is, this is pretty ancient, I mean, this is pre- like the time before time, right? So, um, I, I guess my point is that uh, the uh, games like Ancients, uh, I think, have something in common with fantasy games, although you, you make more of an argument that, you know, traditional fantasy, as you said, has a lot more to do with the medieval period, but um, but not always. And I think there are elements of the fantasy wargaming trope that sort of fit into the ancient's warfare picture uh, I think they are similar. You know, there's there are some some very exotic units in uh, in ancient warfare. Uh, you know, scythe chariots that Troy and I'll talk about. But um, you know, I, I think that a lot of it is because people a don't really know about these things, and b they it's it's one of the, it's 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 not a very war gamed uh, period. 
So, um, but Troy and I did play a lot of games, and uh, like I said, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But we've we've played some computer games, and you know, one of the I think best systems for simulating ancient warfare was a board game, but then was a computer game. Did, did you ever, Rob, did you ever play the Interactive Magic Great Battles series? Was this, uh, this really, did, was it basically fought between red and blue lines? Was that the predominant art style? Was, like, a map with, like, little, like, armies crawling along, like, inchworms? Well, it was 1995, so I don't know whether okay. there was, it was, it's probably all text-based and, and whatnot. All right, well, then I, let, let's say I haven't. Okay, so, so there, I think there are different ways of looking at ancient warfare and regardless of how accurate your historical data is and you know whether there were you know 500 you know pikemen or 3000 or whatever there's this idea that either everybody kind of rushes at each other uh like they do in uh 300 or everything is dependent on leaders and you know leaders are a very important part of all wargaming and depending on the kind of game that you're playing you know Steve, rob i think you're 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 interested more in civil war games probably than ancients and civil war games have a very important leadership component and um you know these are all things that can really change the way that a game um that a game presents itself because on one hand you can sort of have these uh, clashes of these giant armies that are just sort of, you know, big melees, or you can have uh, games in which um, they're very dependent on these sort of iconic leader leadership figures that are required to move the, um, the units themselves. Otherwise the units kind of get stuck. And this is an understanding of, of ancient warfare that I think is still in dispute um, and nobody really knows how to deal with it. Um, Interactive Magic's uh, game was based on a, a particular interpretation of history, that by uh, Mark Herman, and I think Richard Berg was also um, a yeah. designer on that. And they felt that leaders, such as Alexander or Julius Caesar, um, would, uh, they sort of exerted this, this, um, this decisive effect on the battlefield in which you know, if you didn't have a leader telling you what to do, you couldn't do it. And I remember um, I actually did a, a piece on that game shortly after it came out uh, on the computer in which I talked to Mark Herman about the streamlining that they had to do for the, uh, for the computer version. And it was an interesting discussion because even then, you know, he felt that, you know, well, we're going to need to change some things so it plays better as a computer game, blah, blah, blah. So even then he was willing to make sort of historical compromises to get what you would call a better game. So um, I think that there's a lot of room to play with these things. Um, and I think that there are, you know, there, there are certainly games that, that, deal with ancient warfare in our strategy, like the Total War series, that are, you know, completely different from that. Um, so um, I'm not really sure what's right and what's wrong. Troy has a better, I think, historical sense of it than I do. But uh, there's there's sort of this wide field, which I think is why it's 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 a shame that more people don't explore these games, because they can be so different. There's, there's something I want to tease out there uh, a, a little bit. Uh, one is that <clears throat> I hadn't really thought of it that way. In that Ancients, in some ways, liberates game design from the traps of history. Because one thing you've brought up many times, Bruce, is the military history we do know, it can be very difficult to find uh, the truly balanced battle. 
Uh, there, there are very few, you know, pitched battles, p- pitched campaigns uh, that really lend themselves to to a, a, a fair, fun uh, war game. And it's interesting to, you know, look at Ancients and see see it as sort of this, uh, you know, blank canvas uh, because you, you really, you can build entire scenarios out of a few offhanded lines in Herodotus uh, and, and suddenly you have a campaign. Uh, yep. Huge Amazon women. Well, Herodotus goes to some interesting places. He was a very, he was a very credulous and fun writer. Uh, the other thing I, I wanted to discuss there because you brought up the role of the commander and, and this I think is maybe one of the things that has has tend to turn me off the idea of uh, Ancients Wargaming because I don't know I, I probably get too hung up like a lot of Wargamers I get too hung up on the idea of somehow I'm playing the realistic game like somehow this is giving me an insight into into how it really was and uh, and maybe I should approach it more as how it might have been but to me it always seemed very fanciful the idea that You'd be pl- you could play an Ancients War game where you're moving units around the map like in a traditional uh, World War II game or something where, you know, units are flanking and they're moving from hex to hex because, you know, really you're, you're dealing with an era uh, where armies were, were, very, were very hard to manage. Uh, and yet a lot of Ancients War games tend to follow that uh, sort of that classic, you know, hex, you know, hex turn-based uh model that I'm not sure really feels correct to me in a lot of ways, uh, because the idea of a commander sitting around, like moving these pieces around, like, like pieces on a chessboard, uh, has always seemed, uh, kind of silly. Now, admittedly for, 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 you know, some, some military innovators probably came closer to realizing that dream, uh, than their predecessors. Right. So like, from from what we know of the you know Alexandrian army, it's a pretty complicated thing to 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 get working correctly. Uh, and once the Romans sort of come along with the uh, you know manipular system that is sort of designed to allow armies to be a little more flexible and a little more maneuverable on the battlefield without direct oversight. So the nature of command changes uh, over time, but it still always seemed like a really huge and, and kind of silly leap to sort of position the player as this omnipotent uh, overseer in these kinds of battles. Because, uh, you know, at least with the Napoleonics, you can pretend there's, you know, there's sub-commanders carrying the stuff out, right? Where somebody has a view of what's going on in this area and, and can give orders. But when I think of Ancients, I think, you know, at the moment of battle, once the troops are committed, that's kind of the moment where most commanders, have, you know, in that era... In, in those eras, have lost control of things. And that's kind of almost where the player's role would, would seem to naturally stop uh, for me. Well, that's kind of why I like the great battle system so well, that it does have sub-commanders, you know, that, and each of them can give a certain number of commands. And the tactical flexibility of a system is designated by having the sub-commanders being able to give more orders than the enemy sub-commanders. Like a Persian sub-commander might be able to give three orders and he'll have a very small radius to give those orders. And if he moves, that counts as one of his orders. Someone like Parmenian might have five. And then you'd have Alexander at the very top with like a nine or something like that, mm-hmm. a nine radius, and he can give nine orders. And of course, there are group orders and all of these different systems uh, that you can do that a lot of um, games have tried to have um, to reflect you know, the limited number of orders. I think of you know, uh, R.T. Smith moved on to the Total War 
system. Like way back in the 80s, he made a game called the Encyclopedia of War Ancient Battles. This really, really ancient game. When the leaders had very, very few orders, but one other thing they could do is they could tell a unit next to if they tell one unit to march for to advance, they can tell the unit next to it, follow that other unit. So you're running the string of orders that cost you nothing because that's like a group command. Mm-hmm. So there are ways, you know, games have tried to, you know, have, they understand ancient games at their best, I think, understand that there there should be some constraints on commanding. That, you know, the Romans should have a more flexible system than, say, uh, the Persia, the uh, Macedonian phalanxes uh, that they run into uh, in the Macedonian wars that they kill very, very quickly and easily. Um, that There should be some reflection of that. The best, I think, ancient war games kind of do that. And then you, But you even see this kind of in the total war games, and all the total war games, and their idea of command is a super unit. And that's what their idea of a leader is. It's a guy with a bodyguard that can kick everybody's ass and every now and then they can rally things. And that's not a very interesting conception of leadership, but that's, the, that, that's principally reduced leadership too in all of these ancient battles and all of these medieval battles. That, you know, it's, it's Superman on a horse. I, I, I will say in defense of the later Total War games that they, they have, to their credit, I think, gotten away from that and towards a slightly more interesting and, and perhaps... Uh, realistic view of the commander in that uh commanders are no longer super units uh really but by any stretch Uh, they're maybe a little more resilient but i've lost enough commanders now just sort of standing behind the line that uh you know the the general is no longer your 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 elite guard uh, that you could send in in the days of shogun uh and the, the the thing i like about the way total war is handling it now is that the commander is and this is this sounds a little reminiscent of the great battle system the commander now has become this guy you have to station near the critical part of the battle uh and and so you know you, he's only got a few moves he can make during the battle uh he can he can he can do a couple like uh super powered moves he can cast like a spell or a bolster some guy's morale uh, but he can only do that once in a while, and his aura is pretty limited on the battlefield as well, so it's become this model where the notion of the commander himself is an asset you have to maneuver uh, to the to the to the decisive point in, in the battle, which which I like a lot more than the than the old uh, Total War uh, you know conception of the commander. Yeah, and I would also point out that, and this is something that came from our forums. I I really sorry I didn't write it down. I should have written this is uh, uh, so I could cre- properly credit the person who pointed it out. But I think in one of our, one of the previous um, episodes there was a comment about uh, how you know, total, uh, the Total War series is really a spectacle, um, and it's cinematic in that sense, the combat is, and I think that the idea of a super unit actually fits that kind of motif very well, and I think that that's originally how it was conceptualized, and so, so of course, if you're going to have a you know, cinematic spectacle, you're going to have a super unit with a big bodyguard and come in and save the day, that would be exactly how it would work in a movie. Uh, and you wouldn't have a movie saying, "Oh gosh, this guy gave an extra order to this, you know, to this, uh, you know, line of troops," and so therefore they were able to, um, you know, to break through and, and save the day. But, um, you know, it, I don't see the Total War series as being a very good uh, depiction of the intricacies of ancient warfare, but I see it as a great depiction of the sort of aesthetics of ancient warfare. 
So, you know, the intricacies of ancient warfare are, uh, are, are, are more robust and complex than uh, I ever thought, uh, at least after we started digging into this idea. So I think what I should say now is that uh, Troy and I have uh, produced uh, a series of videos the first one of which will be available shortly after this podcast is posted, and uh, we will definitely give you uh, some uh, notice on that. But what we did was we went and played some uh, tabletop board games about the Battle of Gogamela or Arbella, whichever one you want to call it, because the games call it multiple things. And we found really a, quite an amazing sort of spectrum of sort of conceptions of ancient warfare. And to that, we added, um, you know, our experience with computer games. And one that we looked at was one from uh, HPS simulations, uh, very well known among war gamers, uh, no, probably unknown by anyone else, um, makers of war games with a certain particular system. John Tiller is uh, primarily a designer on, on most of them. And um, these games uh, are very fiddly, and they include a lot of detail. And the one that we played was called Alexandrian Wars. And this is yet another uh, sort of conception of, uh, or conceptualization of uh, ancient warfare that is quite different from interactive magic. Uh, Troy, did you get, uh, did you get that feeling from, uh, from playing Alexandrian Wars? I did. I mean, a lot of it, is just comes from the whole Wego system and having a Wego system uh, in a war game. Um, it's a system we're familiar with from a lot of a lot of war games. Use Wego, you know. Everyone one side gives their turn, the other side puts in their turn. Then both turns are both orders are executed at once. And having Wego instead of you know turn by turn by turn, which is the most way most war games do it, adds a special kind of flow and give and take to an ancient battle. Now, since ancient battles are... Now, every battle takes place in real time, Every so that's not especially unique to ancient warfare. But a lot of ancient warfare is because it does take place very quickly in very small spaces, is about anticipation. It's about planning where the enemy is going to be and hitting them. And they're not a static thing you're hitting. You've got to get to... You've got to cross... And get to that enemy cavalry before they're too far advanced, before they can get to your wing. Uh, you have to advance before the archers can get to you, could weaken you too much. There's all of this, the sense of timing is so important in ancient warfare, which is why I think, you know, ancient games probably should be best played on the computer in a Wego or a real-time system, or in the old Slytherin Legion games, everyone gives their orders and they just smack into each other and you see what happens. Um... And just that one aspect of the game really by itself um, gives a very different sense of what ancient warfare is like from the turn-based with Trump system uh, great battles uh, doctrine. And it's, I mean, it's, I think we underestimate how important um, just the basic design, how will this game play out? Uh, just will it be turns? Will it be simultaneous? Will it be Wego? Will it be Trumps? Will it be phases? We I think underestimate how important that one decision is for changing your impression of an entire um, game battle system history. Yeah, I agree, and I think that um, that's something that you just can't do in a, in a tabletop game. And of course, none of the games that we played over the summer had any form of Wego 
Um, and, and as you and I certainly experienced, especially in some of the games, watching your opponent make his move and then being able to make your move next, I mean, it was, it was really more like just you said, you know, this elaborate game of chess uh, rather than really a, uh, you know, sort of an interpretation of ancient warfare. It was more like a, you know, ancient warfare themed uh, chess game. And, you know, I think that there are different that that thing by itself, as you said, is um, is so huge. But then it also does another thing differently that you couldn't really do in a, in a tabletop game. And that is the degree to which the game tries to simulate things like weapon length and, you know, how many ranks uh, deep uh, a line is. All sorts of crazy things. I mean, I just want just just for our listeners. Um, I think that I, what I want to do is uh, is read just read some of the so there's something that's called a, I won't go into a whole bunch of details because that's a it's a um, it's it's incredibly boring for people who aren't totally into this but I just want to say that there's something called a loss factor and in order to con- to calculate that loss factor there are a number of different things that you can take into account and I just want to tell you uh, a few things so I'll just read you um, minus one if a unit is attacking across a palisade wall. Minus one if a unit is attacking into a wood, shallow water, orchard, rough, marsh, or swamp. Minus one if the attacking unit's fatigue is medium. Minus one if the unit is disrupted. Minus one if the unit is militia or levy class. Minus one if militia or levy troops charging in. Minus two if the unit is attacking into a building, village, rocks, or forest. These are all factors you can stack. Uh, yes. Minus two if cavalry fighting to cross a defended linear obstacle. Minus two if the attacking unit's fatigue is high. Plus one of following up opponents who are following back in a melee. Plus one of up slope of opponents. I mean, I, I could keep going. I could keep going for another ten. But minutes. this is all stuff that's operating under the hood of the simulation. Exactly, exactly. And and so you know what you're doing in in the computer game, which is completely different from a tabletop game, is you're sort of just fighting the game as or fight. Actually, sometimes you are fighting the game. That was a kind of a slip there, but. Uh, fighting the battle as though you're trying to fight the battle and then sort of trusting that all those factors are kind of getting rolled in. And yeah, these guys are, you know, these guys are fatigued that I'm attacking and they're, and I'm upslope of them and they're falling back and I should really be getting some, you know, some, some cumulative bonuses on this. Um, so these are all, uh, these are all things that you could never do in a tabletop game. And there are, there are uh, you know, in the, in the WeGo, it's not just a WeGo system. So there's, there is actually, I mean, it, it is a WeGo system, but it's, it's, it has twists to it. So there's a movement sequence, okay? So it says, when the computer runs the events for a turn and two units move charge against each other, there is a priority to type uh, based on the following hierarchy. There are 22 different hierarchies starting with medium cavalry, then heavy cavalry, then medium infantry, and then it just goes on and on and on. Number 14 is civilians. Uh, number 14 is civilians. Number 17 is mantlets. Uh, number 20 is assault tower. And number 22, and last in the uh, um, priority, is camelry. Not cavalry, camelry. So... Okay. Um, all these things are different, and they all move it. And this is stuff that you could just never, never do uh, in a tabletop game. So you would think, and and what you have to do is you have to give orders to different units, and you would think that this would extend to an incredibly detailed leader system in which you could, you know, send certain types of orders to certain types of units at certain times based on a certain radius from the leader, 
et cetera, et cetera, right? Wrong. First of all, leadership is an optional rule. So you have pages and pages and pages of detail about the way in which the, uh, which the system works in terms of types of, um, types of units, types of weapons, depth of defense, terrain, uh, all this kind of stuff. And leadership, you don't even have to use it. And then if you do use leadership, if you do use leadership, it's very simple. The leader has a leadership rating, A, B, or C, and based on that rating, it has a radius. And if you are within the leadership radius, then you're in full leadership. And if you're not, then you can't do anything. End of story. Troy, what did you think about that? That, that was shocking to me. There was, I mean, I, I, a lot about this game shocked me. Um, like how it's so luckily it was 1983. But there was, the, the, you pointed a really big distinction here. And we can, you can make an argument that it's, it's making it's making a, it's making a thesis out of omission that by not putting any interest really in leaders beyond a traditional proximity radius thing, which you've seen in tons of war games, that it's saying leaders aren't as important as weapon as equipment and terrain. That ancient battles are just about equipment and terrain and training. And once they got there, the leaders had no effect, no influence beyond maybe some personal magnetism type thing. And maybe they could give some control. They're generally saying, I would argue, that leaders are not important to understand ancient warfare, which is a case that a lot of people have made, that, you know, some generals were just really successful because they just had the best army. And, you know, that, that's what makes a good general, who has the best army. Now, how you get that best army, who knows? Like, would, would Philip have conquered uh, Persia or, instead of Alexander with the same army? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but the, having all of these detailed rules about, you know, pursuit and the class of the unit, and even the, you know, the length of the pike. I mean, these are all important things for actually understanding ancient war. Like to understand why the hoplites lost to the phalanx, you know, having a 16-foot spear versus an 8-foot spear, that's going to make a difference. Um, very few war games actually capture that beyond saying, beyond giving the phalanx, you know, better combat ratings. I mean, that's the general solution. Um, Paul Bruffel, in his, he's the designer of the Ancient Warfare series for HPS, um, he says, no, you can't just give them a better combat rating. You actually got to do the math, I guess. Um, and there's all of this math. And this is a game full of math. And I wonder sometimes if, I wish the game was better about explaining what was happening like, you see all these numbers, like, oh, I just lost five, I just lost eight, I just lost ten, and it goes by so fast, you're not quite understanding why. And there are so many factors going on that you don't might not understand all the calculations going into the battle, what you're doing wrong, you know, what is the penalty for, I mean, it's never good to walk into a marsh. I understand that. But it's good to know just how much you're losing by walking into that marsh. Um and it's not always clear because there's because every everything happens simultaneously. I mean, you're, some cavalry gets hit with like thirty exploding number points, and you don't know was that archers, was that javelin men? Where are these numbers coming from? If they're just numbers, you have all these combat factors, and then when the battle happens, they're not tied to any particular encounter, 
which is so frustrating when you're trying to learn a new ancient battle system that is so elaborate, so deep. And, you know, that takes place on a map you can't zoom to a comfortable level. Right. I, I think that the... Um... But, but this also this also sort of sort of sort of illustrates, I think, a point that 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 war gamers, I, I think, wargaming tends to to be biased in the direction of things that you can count, right? I think I think wargamers can become very uncomfortable with making qualitative judgments about things like leadership, like how many commands could Alexander give relative to you know Parmenian? Well. I don't think a lot of it, I don't think you can, you could defend quantitatively, but the stuff about the spears, you certainly could, you have a, you sort of have a better, um, a better foundation for that. So I think that that might be, but, it, but you're, you're right. It is, it is definitely a design thesis that the leadership really isn't that important. Um, you know, it's, I don't think it's an oversight. I think it's a deliberate uh, decision. You could certainly have done a whole bunch of different things with the leadership system uh, because you certainly it's not like you would have clogged up the game anymore. I mean, the interface is certainly primitive, um, to say the least. And it, I can't imagine it being very... Uh, I, I can't imagine it being very much more difficult to play with a more detailed leadership system. Um, I found the game very... I don't know what how how to put it. Um, fiddly is not the word. Um, you made a lot of repetitive clicks on things. It was hard to see what your overall sort of uh, position was. I mean, you could see the position, but like you said, those numbers when they started coming at you, uh, you had a very hard time kind of figuring out exactly what your position was relative to the enemy. Um, but. I think it's very you know you need games like this because you need to represent this kind of this kind of part of the interpretation of ancient warfare um, because there certainly are others um, you know we've we've and we we played uh, we played several of them. Rob, you talked about the Hegemony series, um, but in, when we were leading up to the podcast, do you have any any what in the, in the Hegemony series? What would you say is the the, the takeaway for you? The one thing that you kind of remember about that better than anything else well i mean the hegemony series is really i think the hegemony uh, series adopts a perspective that i'm personally maybe a little more comfortable with with uh which is that in a lot of these areas it's not necessarily uh the quality of given units that created uh, that, that explain why why one empire rises and another falls. Hegemony, hegemony really looks at it as this combination of um, like diplomacy and logistics. Uh, that warfare follows this uh, sort of rapid fire seasonal pattern, uh, where you know you have limited limited time to bring an army out on the field. They have limited supplies. What can you get done uh, in a campaigning season before? something else starts to boil over. And that's the other part of this game, right? Is that you, you're, are, you, nobody can, can, su can support an army that can be everywhere at once. You know, the state isn't that strong yet. It doesn't have enough wealth to do that. So Hegemony becomes a series that's very much about buying yourself these uh, windows of opportunity and seeing what your army can get done during those windows. And then it closes and you've probably got to be you know, dealing with two or three other pots that are about to boil over. Uh, 
Uh, and so that's its conception of, of warfare in this period, uh, which is very much this, it's, you know, if you're doing it right, it's almost like the series of like mini blitzkriegs, right? You can, you can create these brief moments where you can make real gains, uh, but then you've got to reach some sort of decisive conclusion uh, quickly because the longer your army is out in one place, the more likely it is that problems are brewing, uh, you know, at your back. Right. So it's it's from a more strategic perspective, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But um, but you it, your ability to um, your ability to stamp out those fires is not necessarily leadership driven. No, it's it, it's hard. It's hardly driven by that at all. Uh, it, it it's more. It's it's a very simple like, you know, do you have the troops to garrison uh, an area? Are those troops likely to stay loyal? This is something I th I'm not sure it was as big a deal in the first hegemony game. It became a big deal in uh, hegemony two and hegemony three, which is that a lot of times as you grow, your empire is becoming this polyglot creation uh, where the cities you conquer are no longer really ever going to truly be loyal to you. Uh, it, it's kind of a funny a funny stance, but not necessarily an incorrect one, uh, if you look at, for instance, the entire history of the Persian Empire, uh, which is this, this, this notion that you can hold a city and you can keep people sort of pacified uh, if you have the troops to occupy it. And you keep them fed and, uh, you know, there's, there's enough gold to go around. Everything will be okay, but... Given the slightest opportunity, those ethnic groups you've conquered will quickly reassert their national identity and try to break away. And so you end up playing the shell game with armies where uh, it becomes as much about where your where your soldiers are from uh, as it is about what type of unit they are, because uh, you don't want to send you know you don't want to send ethnically unreliable troops into a battle against their brethren. Right, so you don't want you don't want the Samnites fighting the Samnites necessarily. You want the Samnites, uh, you, you know, fi fighting the, uh, you know, uh, the Marcy. You know that. So that's kind of a, that's kind of its approach. Right, and I think that to me that seems that's that's sort of the ideal strategic layer for a game, right? Because it's a little more boring when the Germans take France because. France is never be going to become German, right? In World War II, right? So you take something, you take over something, and it's over. Yet in these ancient, you know, ancient empires were, were rising and falling all the time. And the sort of the ways in which they fractured were different and fell, you know, along certain lines, uh, you know, ethnic lines, the lines of certain, uh, you know, uh, Family, um, family or tribal control, and it's very much more dynamic. And so you can get a game in which, just like you said, you can have a city that is yours now, and it could be any number of other opponents' city, you know, ten turns from now. So that I think that that part of ancient warfare is much more interesting, I think, to people intuitively than the sort of people smashing into each other with these giant spears, which, I mean, frankly, to me is actually kind of interesting, but um, I don't know. Troy, what's what's your most, uh, sort of, what's most interesting to you about ancient warfare? Um, well, ancient warfare, I think it's the, co the 
the battle of systems. I mean, it's a very traditional way of looking at ancient warfare that you have so many different ways of doing it because every group evolved its own different practices and its own different types of units. And you have, for example, the Persians, they just do like these mass levies. And it works really well if you're running against other people who do mass levies. You just outnumber them and scare them to death. And it works, you know, quite well. I mean, even... Cyrus might have been, and Darius might have been a little bit more sophisticated than that. But generally, the Persian model is, you know, have really elite cavalry, have hire some Greek mercenaries to the backbone of your army, and just have a bunch of other guys standing around. Um, and when we played um, our Galgamela war games, it was interesting, you know, how many games just decided not to even include the tens of thousands of Persian infantry who are generally useless in the battle uh, because they were useless. They were just sitting around getting killed. They, didn't, they were hard to command, hard to order. They were basically there to be cannon fodder and soak up Macedonians until the cavalry could get their act together. But then you have, you know, Hannibal and his army of, you know, largely mercenaries, you know, and trying to make that work and combined arms. And, I mean, I think he's probably the greatest general in history because he was in enemy territory for 15 years with an army made up of Spaniards and Gauls and a few disaffected Italians and whatever Carthaginian soldiers and Libyan-Phoenicians were still alive after all of these battles. And he could hold that together for like 15 years. That's that's something. The fact that they ended up conquering the country, big deal. Um, and you know, there's the Roman model, and there's you know the Indian model, and the ancient Egyptian model. There are <coughs> all of these different models of armies and models of command with you know very different units. And you see all of this experimentation, the type of experimentation you get some of in the 20th century and in the birth of the Industrial Revolution, where people are just trying to figure out, well, this might work. There's got to be a way to use elephants. No, you, you cannot use elephants. Elephants were a bad idea. They're always a bad idea. But people, people just think they have, there has to be a way to make this idea work. So everybody keeps trying to use elephants. And you have, you know, people, you have the Romans say, oh, God, we need to build boats. How do we build boats? So they learn how to build boats and turn naval warfare into a land combat by having marines board ships instead of sinking them. You have this great experimentation. This, And we know what we know about ancient warfare is very, very little. I mean, Rob's right to say, you know, we do a lot of stuff based on a few lines of Herodotus and Polybius and Plutarch and just some offhand. And, you know, what's passed down and passed down through the medieval tactics, many of which are adapted uh, Roman tactics. So I think it's just the variety that you, you see in ancient war and like even like the great battles games, which are not the best art, you know, the interactive magic games. Just the spectacle of the different types of units. Oh, my God, this army's got camels. What do they do? So you play with the camels for a bit and see that they have a negative effect on horses because horses are afraid of the smell. So you learn how to use the camels. Of course, they're not great against spears, but you can hurt the enemy cavalry. So if they're weak in cavalry, your opponent's stronger in cavalry, you send the camels over there. Just all of this adaptation of tactics based on variety. Um, I think that's why I really love ancient warfare. That's the kind of thing you really don't get a lot of when armies become more, you know, scientific. I guess is a way to put it. I mean, this is the birth of science. People trying to figure out the best way to kill people fast. And there's only one Archimedes. Man, I would love if 
more game more war games looked like this great battles game uh that i'm looking at i pulled up a youtube of great battles of hannibal and I'm like, no, those are great. Those are clean, readable sprites. So they're animated. Oh, it looks fantastic. And they are available this on is... GOG.com. Oh, wait, you're kidding. Yep, all three of them. You you jerks. You didn't even tell me. I thought you knew. Oh, I could have I could have studied so much better for this. Oh, you're scum. Oh, God, you're a real Alcibiades, Troy. I, I have not knocked off any penis statues in a while. Uh, hang on. So I could okay, but what my point there was this is um, this is I, my my point there was I'm looking I'm comparing this to Alexandrian Wars from HPS Sims, and I'm like boy, Great Battles, which is which is pretty old by this point, right? Oh yeah, it it still looks better, you know, cleaner and more readable and and more playable than than a lot of stuff that's the, a lot of stuff that you're coming you're seeing uh come out of the the serious war game space uh today field of glory is i mean i like it but i mean it's, field of glory is a miniature system it's kind of a it's kind of um adapted uh dba dbm those are the like the kings of uh, medieval miniatures. This is kind of similar to those. Um, I think it was designed by the guys who run Slytherin. Um, now it was designed by them. It's published by them because they were all because they were both uh, the McNeil brothers were DBA DBM world champions. So then they made their own system. And they've uh, published a war game related to it, and it is. I like it quite a bit. Um, it's it, a lot of it feels a bit like the old uh, uh, great battle system. I mean, because it is largely about disruption, uh, you know, disruption, fragmentation, all of this stuff we see in other, you know, ancient war games. It is about you know making the enemy rout more than it is about destroying the enemy, which you see in quite a few war games. It's about casualties more than uh, routing. Here, it's largely about routing. Um, it has, you know, a lot of neat rules like units that will not obey you. Occasionally, units will rebel. They'll refuse to, like, you can say, hey, light cavalry, go charge that phalanx. And they'll say, to hell with that, and just not move. Or you'll have Gallic soldiers that will just charge on their own. They'll just be impetuous, and they'll go forward whether you want them to or not. So it has all of these neat kind of rules that a really good, I think, ancient system um, will adapt. Um, again, it has, you know, it's, it has, it has, it has leaders who can do things, um, mostly their, you know, morale, the morale boosts more than anything else. It, 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 it's a fine system. I think it's got a good variety of battles, um, like GBOH at the Great Battle series, uh, the fans have taken it a long way with a lot of editing, a lot of great variations on battles. This is one of the things I liked about the Great Battle series, you're seeing it in the Field of Glory, is <coughs> because there is disagreement on what ancient battles looked like, there you'll have like three different versions of Galgamela. You'll have, you know, what would have happened if the Battle of Marathon, and the horses were there. Well, I think the horses were there, but they were in a different place. So you have this dialogue between battle creators in the fan system over what the ancient battle looked like based on different sources. And that's what happens with a powerful editor um, with a simple system that GBOH had or Field of Glory had. And you could edit the battles in the Total War game. I made an ancient battle from for Rome Total War. The first Rome, I 
train myself to use this crappy editor to make an historical battle. And it took forever. It took forever to do it. Because I chose a big battle, too. Parerekikini, Eumenes last battle against Antiochus. I'll say Antigonus. And I did that, a huge battle. I was an idiot. Um, and it was fun to try and figure it out, but it was so, so hard. Um, but, you know, this is my field of glory where you're just placing miniatures on a map and you paint the terrain. Um, that's really good for the ancient battles community, which I think is probably larger than war gamers give it, war game designers give it credit for, to go into the ancient sources and create alternate battles and alternate histories and alternate interpretations of battles. Um, because, as you said, uh, Bruce, there is the fact there are so many, there is such disagreement, there's an open space for design, even if it's just in the design of what was the order of battle. Yeah, I mean, but and you nobody's, I mean, the rivet counters can't definitively shoot that down, right? There apparently is a, uh, a guy on YouTube that uses uh, Stronghold Crusader 2 to make sort of... Um, depictions of of ancient battles uh have you guys seen any of that no. stuff no i no all right there's a great one with um the uh siege of jerusalem that i think i uh you guys need to see but uh, and we'll have a link to it at the bottom of the wait podcast. no i think i have seen this one uh but like you're talking like first crusade yeah yeah no i think i think i did see him like yeah he's sort of painting the map and that kind of thing yeah i think i saw this is there anything similar for 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 real ancients? Not that I can think of. I mean, but then I don't spend a lot of my time on YouTube uh, unless it's watching me unless it's watching Taylor Swift videos, um, and and your videos, of course. Oh, of course, Bruce. of course. So you know, I think that uh, the thing that I really like about the about that kind of space, and I think there's a, actually there is a guy that did uh, something like that. I've got to find it. He did it with Legos. And I see that as yet another sort of um, interpretation of how people see ancient battles that can't be contradicted by the rivet counters. And I find that somehow incredibly liberating. I don't know how you guys feel about it. But the fact that Troy and I were able to play five different games about the same battle and have them all be completely different, some of them seemed frankly ludicrous, um, one of them bear, bore no resemblance at all to anything. Yes, and you'll learn about that well, when we. Uh, you, you come on, you can't like just throw that out there. I'm I'm curious now about this diversity of experiences because what I'm what I'm trying to get at here is like, what's the thi- like what what's the thing that these games like are, need to be getting at right? Like if if we're gonna get like platonic about it right like what's the what's the form of ancient wargaming that these that these are are circling around what are its qualities and then how do you know when a game has that intangible factor and how do you know when it's when it's completely missed oh i i don't i mean what 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 do i i mean what do you think they are i mean that that's the thing right well i mean bruce we did admit it besides that some games just first didn't some of them didn't work as games what that's true, I, uh, and some of them didn't work as Galgamela. So, uh, so I mean, there, I mean, a, a general game about ancient war, a general game about Galgamela should certainly have you know Macedonians and Persians facing off against each other. There should be more Persians than Macedonians. Um, 
how many more that's that's a legitimate discussion that's a legitimate debate how many more persians are the macedonians um <clears throat> there should be you know there should be cavalry on either side of the macedonian the cavalry should be doing most of the work in the battle um this is really a, it's decided on the wings you know the phalanx is there to just pin things in place um and that's really and the per the Macedonians should have more more mobility in general. I and mean, that's really all you're looking for in Galgamela. But for ancient warfare, what you're looking for, I think, is so dependent on you know the time and the space and the battle. Um, I, I look at the HPS game. Look at Alexandrian Wars and how much focus is on terrain. And it's like, well, you know, where did that come from? Well, because terrain kind of mattered. But how much? We don't really quite know, actually. I mean, you don't have armies fighting in swamps near marshes most of the time. Um, but they've got to put in a marsh rule and a hill rule. It's The weird thing about ancient warfare is you know, how rarely the armies actually fought. Because it's all about trying to convince the... It's, it's, it's like medieval warfare, Renaissance warfare, even Frederick the Great. It's convincing the other guy to come out and fight you. That he, that making him believe this is his best chance to win a battle, or his only chance to win a battle. It's forcing him to come out and, and face you, because these armies are relatively mobile. They can live off the land. These aren't huge Napoleonic armies that can, you know, eat a country into submission. These are, at most, you know, you'll probably get, you know, the largest armies will be around 50,000, unless you're some Persian horde. Um, so you can generally forage okay in a country for okay for a while. So, but what a platonic form of ancient what an ancient war game should have cavalry, <laughs> gotta have horses. Um, it has to understand. This is the great debate. The one thing that I don't think is quite understood, and I want to see solved in ancient warfare, one way or the other: how important are archers? And this comes up to me because of something you mentioned, uh, Rob, in your rock, paper, shotgun breakdown of the Total War thing, how in Rome 2, arrow archers, fire arrow archers, are you know, a weapon of mass destruction in Rome 2. And which is... They're cluster ludicrous. munitions. Uh, yeah, it, it's absolutely ludicrous. But in general, archers are relatively strong uh, through the Total War games. Not super strong, but they're relatively strong. Um, but, you know, you read um, some scientific data on could an arch, could an ancient bow shoot through a helmet or a shield? And it's like, well, maybe not. Depends how strong the guy is pulling it. Could have, So could a mass levy of archers do this? Probably not. Well, the record certainly, like, for instance, like with hoplite warfare, the record certainly suggests that Hoplites could shrug off most attacks from light infantry, except in a few yep. very rare cases where yep. the geography was catastrophic for the hoplite. Yeah, but then you get into, into, into the, the, the Peltasts and the Peloponnesian War, who are using javelins, and they're harassing on the wings, and they can move in and out, and they force the hoplites to get tired. So the Peltasts are, you know, they're skirmishers, more or less. Mid middle infantry skirmishing types. So they're not archers, but they're not... Ex and a bow is stronger than a javelin, uh, as far as you know, as much power you can ge generate through it, even though it's got larger mass. Um, so you wonder. So the question is, okay, but so where does the evolution come from? This is why I love ancient warfare. I think that there should be 
that's the question I want answered. That's that's the thing I, I like looking for is how strong are skirmishers? Because the Peloponnesian, the, the Athenians were able to keep the Spartans largely under control um, because of their use of, of, of Peltasts until they lost the naval war. Because they couldn't beat them in a hoplite head on uh, for some reason. I guess Spartans are good or something. Legend says, largely a legend, but legend says the Spartans were superior. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure there is a platonic. Uh, I mean, it, it, there are things that, of course, I don't like seeing in ancient, ancient war games. I don't like seeing Ptolemaic Egyptians riding chariots. I understand why the Total War people did, did it, to have a variety of armies. But no, the Total War, the Egyptian, Ptolemaic Egyptians were just another Alexandrian army. That's it. A multicultural Alexandrian army, a lot of mercenaries, heavily mercenaries, like most of the post-Alexander armies were <coughs> in the Near East. So that's one thing. I, I like to have some rough accuracy. But even then, accuracy is, you know, such such a mess. We had, you know, cookie-cutter legionnaires in all of these games, even though, you know, there really weren't uniforms for the longest time. Uh, I, 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 I have a lot of questions about ancient war. Like how, did, how did two Roman armies know who their enemy was when they got fighting? Who then knew who the bad guy was? That's something I wonder like all the time about medieval warfare, too. Once, once the scrum has started and everyone's just wearing sort of their cobbled-together armor. Yeah, I mean, what's stopping it? Yeah, I mean, you know, some guys, you're chasing some guy on a route and a legionnaire falls down. See a bad guy? Or a good guy? Like, these are all these little weird things, I think, with ancient war, because we don't know. We know so little, and we've had so, so many books are written on this, and there are so many movies, and there are just so many open questions, and that's kind of the fun. I mean, um, uh, my acquaintance Joshua Browers edits Ancient Warfare magazine, and a lot of his articles are, and the articles in the magazine are, well, we just dug up this vase and here's one thing that tells us we didn't know or that we, or that we might and then not you're, and know. then you're giving a lot of credit to the to the vase maker to to get that detail right yeah what if, yeah. What if the vase maker didn't know anything because then in 150 yeah. years someone's going to be looking at like the audie murphy biopic and being like well we know world you know we know world war ii it was like this Ex Exactly. That's what archaeologists have so much fun with. That's where the whole, you know, overhand, underhand debate comes from. It's like, a, well, where is the spear being held in the in the vases? Well, it's usually the overhand, but there's generally a reason for that. Um, it's what is it a battle of? It's a heroic battle. It's not a hoplite battle. So it's going to be more dramatic. It's going to be the spear stroke coming down. It's not going to be down in the wall because you don't see walls on vases. So this is where the whole debate comes from. I just love this period because of the uncertainty. Yeah, the other thing that I wanted to point out was that, you know, okay, what what is that, you know, the thing that it is, I don't know, but the thing that it's not is this very elaborate, you know, delicate balance of you know, ballet of units moving precisely in certain ways to just hit somebody on the flank in just such a way to eliminate that unit. I mean, that's a game we did play. That was um, designed actually uh, by Gary Gygax, and that was called Alexander the Great. It was a, uh, a board game uh, that was designed, I think, in 1974, and it, uh, it really 
was it, it was a it was an excellent tournament board war game, and it had nothing to do with Gogamel whatsoever. Tell me about the, the hang on. So, so there's a Gary Gygax uh, ancient warfare game. Oh yes, the Gary Gygax. Well, it's a, it is a Gary Gygax game with an ancient warfare name in it. So now you should you should you should keep in mind the fact that Gary Gygax was very active in miniatures gaming and war gaming, uh, and you know his I think the design of I mean, Dungeons, everybody knows that Dungeons and Dragons was originally, you know, chain mail and they had, it was a medieval miniatures, you know, war game system. But if you read John Peterson's excellent uh, Playing at the World, it talks all about how uh, Gary Gygax, um, you know, was so involved in this early war gaming and how he, um, you know, especially was interested. I mean, he was a, he was a, a tournament player of the game Stalingrad um, and uh, he designed a game which was really, you know, played as a tournament tournament war game for years called uh, Alexander the Great. It, it was released in 1974. And Troy and I played it. And it is an excellent game for determining who is the better, you know, technical manipulator of units, you know, and, and having their char chariots move around in certain ways. But it just has nothing to do with Gogamel at all. It has, you know, the, 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 it's it's like played in this weird fishbowl where you can like go up on the slopes of the of the. It's like it's almost like in a in a, like a moon crater or something like that. And it has it has it has hills and mountains. Yeah, and Galgamela famously had neither of those. Yeah, it's wacky. It's 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 wacky stuff. And and you know, I had never really played. A, I think you know, as an adult, as a kid, maybe I played it and and was like, oh, this is really fun. But then I I played it as an adult, and Troy and I were just looking at it like, what what does this have to do with this Battle of Galgamela at all? Um, and it had none of the uh, you know, none of the standard uh, you know, ancient gaming war gaming conceits. Um, so it was, that was pretty much a, that was a big surprise and a big eye opener for us when we played it. Uh, but, um, yeah, that's, that's, the, I mean, there were, obviously there were games that were better. Um, one thing that, uh, you know, maybe our, our listeners who are not hardcore, uh, hardcore board gamers or would never play a hardcore board game, if they were interested in something lighter, they might like to play the Command and Color series. I was going to ask about that. Yeah, very much enjoyed that that series. Um, and it does Ancients in a way that, you know, that same series is used for Memoir 44, which I think is terrible. It's just a, it's, it, it just doesn't, I mean, it's, it's great as a, you know, as a light war game that has tanks in it, but it has nothing to do with, with, um, and I don't think it's really meant to have much to do with with World War II warfare, but as a, as a, uh, as an Ancients game, it's actually a pretty good simulation. Yeah, I really like the command and color system because it does have, you know, the whole idea of command, <laughs> command and colors, uh, it, how it has the card system and the three parts of the battlefield. It really works for an, of the feel of an ancient battle that might be getting out of your control and making use of the cards you've got with the units you have some control over. Like, you might have nothing for your left flank, so you've got to find something for the center and right to repair the situation you're in. Um, uh, and it's got, you know, good retreat rules. It's got, you know, good leadership rules. It's got a ton of stuff that really captures, uh, I think, ancient warfare in an interesting and dynamic way. Games can go back and forth. You can, it, it will often look like something that would happen in the great battles game because you'll have, you know, one flank collapsing while the other one stands solid. Things that I think are what make ancient warfare ancient warfare. Uh, I haven't tried it for the Napoleonics system. I wonder how well it would work there. Uh, but I agree that the 
the same system for Memoir 44 is such a disaster. But it's very popular. People like it. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, Memoir 44 is a game I got early in my in my board wargaming uh, career. And I'm actually I'm actually sort of annoyed now that I own it. Uh, I probably should have given it given given it up long ago because uh, yeah, it's just a. Th- there's never a day when I have time to play Memoir Forty Four that I wouldn't rather have played something else. But I have seen like I think very highly of the uh, Battles of Westeros uh, system, uh, for instance, which which is derived from that. Uh, and it, it does it is a system uniquely suited, especially once you introduce the idea of heroic commanders and characters. It is uniquely suited. Uh, to the issues of command in, in these sort of pre-gunpowder eras. Well, I think that system also, you know, I've only played it once, but it seems to work not badly for Napoleonics. And I think that that has, it all has to something to do with this idea. You know, so, Troy, correct me if I'm wrong, but the command and color system it basically says that there are leaders and then... There's other stuff. And while the leaders aren't necessarily directly doing things, the cards really are the leaders, right? Yeah, more or less. You know, the, the, the cards reflect you know, how much control you have over a certain area. Now, you might have leader units on the board, and they, get, they give bonuses uh, to the units around them um, and give bonuses in combat. But generally, yeah, you could argue that, in fact, in the, in the epic version of the Command and Color series, where you play with a large board, there is an overarching command. It's played by by, by by eight people, where you have a commander-in-chief right. and three generals underneath them. And the, the under-generals give cards to the commander-in-chief, and the commander-in-chief decides which one to play, which I think is just making the subtext text. Um, because yeah, I, th- I would say the cards reflect, you know, yeah. control uh, a leader's control over a certain part of the battlefield. Yeah, the um, the, and that, I think that system works in in situations where that's something that's called into question, and in a in a situation where you have things like, well, I don't know, radios, um, it it's not really that relevant, and that's why I think you know, Memoir Forty Four doesn't work. I I I'm really um. I'm really surprised at how differently I can feel about a certain system playing two different uh, two different periods of history and really yeah. love one and really really hate the other. Demon mechanics have to have to meet somewhere. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, like you guys have done a good job of, of sort of turning me around on uh, ancient warfare as a war gaming topic. Uh, and certainly, I think now I'm curious to go back and, and try the uh, try the Great Battles Collector's Edition on uh, GOG.com. Yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, what I think I'm at that point right now where 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 I, where I still kind of want the, the 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 sort of the fantasy reflected back at me in some ways. So like an Alexandrian period, right? I want to see sort of the, these nimble combined arms, Alexandrian armies. Uh, sort of, you know, running rings around uh, more cruder, uh, you know, more more hoplite based Greek armies, right? Or, uh, you know, less flexible, uh, you know, Persian mobs and, and that kind of thing. Um, you know, with, with Romans, I, I, I like the idea of the Romans sort of being this this industrial power before there was an age of industry, 
right? This this idea that the Romans have this sort of mechanistic quality uh, to their warfare that plays out against these uh, the, these other sorts of armies, and it's sort of this new thing uh, you're seeing for the first time in warfare. Whether almost whether or not that was entirely true, right? Whether or not the Romans were so much more organized than everyone else, uh, or or whether you know their success was reflective of other things as well. I still like the idea of, of, of seeing that reflected back to me in a war game, right? Where the Romans sort of, you know, their, you know, their formations sort of move in lockstep and the, the, the different, you know, each cohort sort of maneuvers independently and, and sort of pins down these larger formations of barbarians. That's kind of what I'm looking for, I guess, in an, in an Ancients game. Uh, but but I, 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 still, I, I still sort of run aground on the idea of, I, I'm never quite certain what my role as a commander should be, right? Because I don't want to move, I don't want to be moving, uh, you know, fifty, you know, fifty counters of identical, you know, hoplite soldiers, for instance, all into a big scrum, and that's and that's my war game experience, right? Uh, I think for me, I, I much more want to, I much more want a game about. Uh, sort of the the decisive point, the critical moment, right? Where where you know the last moment at which a general can exert control uh, over this kind of battle. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess you know there are different ways to to see that experience. You know, I think that it would be interesting to have something where you you give uh, you know this. The, it, we talked we've talked about Peter Turkan's Waterloo on this show several times, and I think that you know the idea where you give these. Um, these units orders and then you sh- kind of shoo-, shoo them off into the battle and then somebody comes running back and says you know sire uh you know our hoplites are breaking on the left and you're like oh my god you know what i mean you, you could really simulate something like that in with a computer game and nobody's ever really done it i think it would be very interesting but um instead we get you know very very careful counting of spear length which is fine i guess there's an appeal for it. I mean, I I did some reading on the uh, some forums about the ancient wars games, and I think it was best summed up by one commenter said one commenter who said, "Oh yeah, these are the best, most detailed games on ancient war. I don't play them very often. They're not a lot of fun." <laughs> yeah, not that fun is necessarily the most important value in a game, but I think that kind of sums up uh, the bruffle situation for me at the point at this point fun helps uh i think it would be the could be the motto for uh the winter of wargaming i would point uh, out to but, them that something can't be the best game if it's no fun period end of story all right i think that is where we'll leave it uh for tonight uh so that covers ancient uh ancient warfare in the winter of wargaming this episode is produced by michael hermes and is hosted by the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show or discuss this episode with our community by visiting our website at threemovesahead.net. Bruce, where are people going to be able to find your videos? People will be able to find my videos uh, on wargamespace.com, and there will be uh, posts on uh, wargamespace.com and on Flash of Steel and on YouTube and well, pointing you to YouTube, and we will certainly post in the forums here. Great. Uh, I should also mention once again that you can now hear me talking about not strategy games uh, with her friend Danielle Riendo on the Idle Weekend podcast. Uh, so far, I discussed the podcast as uh, I described the podcast as eclectic in its interests but focused in its discussions. Uh, I highly recommend checking out our Christmas episode, A Very Dark Forces Christmas, uh, to get a taste of what we're up to over there. 
we'll be back next week with another three moves ahead. Until then, this is Rob Zachney saying good night. Good night, all. Good night, everybody.